0: Hey, recording. Hello and welcome to the Transplant Infectious Podcast. This is Shmuel Shoham. We're recording from Tacoma Park, Maryland today, and we'll have an interview with Christine Durand. The interview was done in Baltimore. I hope you excuse the quality of the recording. The sound levels between Dr. Durand and myself are sometimes funny in the recording. What is lacking in the sound quality, however, is more than made up in the exceptional insights that Dr. Durand provided. I know you'll enjoy it. Now as North America and pretty much the whole world is contending with coronavirus, it's hard to remember that there are other infectious disease issues in transplantation that are going on. And uh, Dr. Durand will be speaking about her expertise, which is transplantation and HIV. Before we dive into that though, let's hit on some of the things that are happening with coronavirus as we speak. One of the major questions that everybody is asking about is what to do about masks. So, masks are controversial. It's unclear if an N95 mask is better than a regular surgical mask. Traditionally, my recommendation has been that the best mask is the one that the patient will actually wear when dealing with risk for respiratory viral infections. That having been said, I think that it's too early to give a recommendation whether a surgical mask, an N95 mask, or no mask at all is the appropriate approach. The CDC at this time is recommending no mask at all for infection protection outside of the hospital. Another question that comes up is what to do with a family member or a friend who has come back from an area with high COVID-19 activity. And the American Society of Transplantation is recommending that for transplant patients right now it's best to avoid contact for 14 days with such individuals and um, if the individuals remain healthy after 14 days then contact can be resumed. Now if it's just not possible to avoid contact then practice frequent hand washing, or hand sanitizer use and all household members should avoid touching their eyes, mouths and nose and uh, cough and sneeze etiquette should be practiced. That is um, obviously gonna be a challenge. So if at all possible, if there's somebody that's a family member or a close friend who is coming back from an area that has high COVID-19 activity, probably best to avoid contact for two weeks to make sure that they remain healthy. Hopefully they'll remain healthy and then contact can be resumed. And then taking it to the next level, what happens if a family member or a close friend becomes infected with COVID-19? Now it's beyond just having been to an area where there's uh, transmission in the community, but actually having an infection. In that situation, the American Society of Transplantation is requesting that the transplant patient or their family should notify the transplant coordinator in the transplant center and that transplant recipient be monitored for symptoms of respiratory tract infection and should they develop those then again they need to contact their transplant team so very much a moving target these recommendations are likely to continue to evolve as we gather more data and learn about this new virus and the infections that it causes in transplant recipients. So moving on now to the interview, coming up in just a few seconds is Dr. Christine Durand. I know you'll enjoy it. Dr. Christine Durand is Associate Professor of Medicine and Oncology at Johns Hopkins and is a member of the Transplant and Oncology Infectious Disease Program and the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. In just 14 years she went from a graduate of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine to completing a residency, then fellowship at Hopkins, securing multiple large federal grants, and all the while being an outstanding clinician and a really nice person. Her focus is on HIV and hepatitis C and on cancer and transplantation, and especially where those diseases intersect. Her groundbreaking clinical and translational research is making the promise of transplantation available to people who in the past simply could not get life-saving organs. Her research has been published in Nature, the Annals of Internal Medicine, multiple times, Journal of Clinical Investigation, and in dozens of other prestigious publications. In the few years since completing fellowship, she has mentored multiple trainees and is a sought-after speaker nationally and internationally. I'm lucky to work with her, and I'm grateful that she's with us today on the Transplant ID Podcasts. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Shmuel. Wow, that was very flattering, and I just want to start off by saying congratulations on the new Transplant ID cast. It's been really fun to see this come to life and to listen to it. So I'm honored to be a guest.
0: Thanks so much. So how did you get interested in HIV and transplant?
1: Well, so let's see. Um, HIV, my interest in HIV definitely came first. Um, When I came to medical school, I already knew I wanted to do infectious diseases, and that came out of some time off I took before med school. I worked for a nonprofit called Partners in Health. You might be familiar with it. Paul Farmer, um, Jim Youngkin started it decades ago, um, and it focused on healthcare for the underserved. And in that experience of time off, I did work with people in the community who were living with HIV and became interested in that as a disease. Then during medical school, I had the fortune, sort of luck, to take another year off, and I worked with Bob Silicano, who's just, as you know, a founding father of HIV basic science and just a really humble, wonderful guy. He was a fantastic mentor and really got me interested in the fascinating science of HIV transplant came later. Um, As a resident, I just happened to get assigned to four weeks of bone marrow transplant, which is sort of an unusual occurrence, and I worked with Rich Ambinder as my tending. Rich Ambinder is our director of bone marrow transplant here, and he's also a viral malignancy guy with a special interest in HIV and stem cell transplant. So all of a sudden, my interest in HIV sort of broadened to include the transplant population. And then when I came on faculty, I overlapped with Aruna Subramanian, who's just another wonderful mentor who had a particular interest in solid organ transplant and HIV. Unfortunately, as you know, she left us and went to Stanford, but she sort of passed the baton to say, hey, you know, this is a special population, and given your interest in HIV and transplant, maybe you could um, sort of focus on that population. So sort of like right place, right time, and right people, and um, I've just been really fortunate to sort of land in this space.
0: Fantastic. So I think that when you were a fellow, maybe I was your attending for a weekend. So uh, uh, it's, it's been amazing for me to see how this uh, uh, career has, has just exploded. And uh, I, I recall myself having uh, been involved very early on in HIV and transplantation when I was uh, working at another hospital when they were first starting to do the transplant procedures in HIV patients, and Michelle Rowland and uh, Peter Stock were really the uh, uh, some of the founders of that, but you've taken it to the next level with uh, the HOPE study. Tell me about that.
1: Right. Well, first, I do want to acknowledge that we're definitely standing on the shoulders of giants because if it weren't for the work of Peter Stock and Michelle Rowland and that whole consortium, this wouldn't even be a therapy option for people living with HIV. Um, but very, very fortunate to be taking it to the next step, and that's as a result of the HOPE Act, or the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, that's a congressional act that was passed in 2013, put into practice in 2015, and it has essentially reversed the legal ban on using organs from individuals with HIV. And so what that has done is really opened the door to allow people living with HIV to donate organs to people living with HIV who need transplants. And given all the great advances in transplant medicine and HIV, this was an antiquated ban that didn't make sense anymore, so the HOPE Act really um, put into practice and allowed what many of us thought would be, um, be practical, safe, and help an already disadvantaged population. So people living with HIV do face higher uh, higher death on the wait list and they have lower access to transplant so the HOPE Act allows them a unique donor source and as a vulnerable population um, they certainly need that.
0: So I was on a plane once and I talked to somebody sitting next to me who uh, when I told her that uh, my colleague is looking to do this, put uh, uh, patients with uh, HIV who are on the list, uh, put organs from other people with HIV, she thought that this was nuts and this was highly irresponsible and that it shouldn't be done. Have you faced some of this type of um, response and how do you respond to it?
1: Well, I think whenever we move into an unknown territory like this, there are concerns and we should take those concerns seriously. The HOPE Act came on the heels of some pioneering work of Elmi Mueller, who's a transplant surgeon in South Africa, and she started doing this back in 2008 um, and had already shown safety and efficacy in a small um, cohort there. And so I think you know all of us thought that we should move into this space cautiously, but for people who are on the wait list and many of whom will die before they ever get an organ offer, I think it's our responsibility to look for innovative ways to expand the donor pool. So, building on the work of, of Dr. Mueller, and given the major advances in HIV medicine that we've had, I think um, this made a lot of sense. And um, again, you know, want to credit the people who really who really pushed this forward. Um, Dori Segev, who's a surgeon here, you know, was was essentially watching patients on the waitlist die while we were you know using passing on organs from donors with treatable infections so hiv hepatitis c and it just seemed like a missed opportunity if we weren't going to at least consider these organs for um, people in need
0: wow so in terms of the recipient um, are there specific things that uh, give you pause to say well this recipient uh, Uh, is one that I would be more concerned about in terms of transplantation, uh, an HIV-positive patient?
1: So when I look at candidates um, in in need, uh, there are a few things I wanna focus on to minimize the risk after transplant. So first step is you want their HIV infection to be under good control. That means being on effective antiretroviral therapy and having an undetectable viral load. And, you know, you and I talked about this with a recent case. There's no hard and fast rule of how long that needs to be. But I think you want your patient to have demonstrated that they can tolerate the medications and that they can take them. So you want um, their HIV infection to be under good control. Similarly, you do want their immune system to have reconstituted somewhat. Um, nowadays, many of our patients living with HIV get put on medications really early and never have significant immune, um, immune uh Decompensation, but um, we have sort of picked in a threshold of 200 CD4 cells as a good threshold to be going into transplant with. So I think those are the big mainstays, having good HIV control, having um, a minimum CD4 count, 200 for kidney transplant, and we allow it a little bit lower for liver transplant, just because with cirrhosis you can sometimes have an artificial lowering of your CD4 count. So 100 is the threshold that we pick for liver transplant.
0: Now, if a patient is well controlled on a regimen that has medications that may cause potential drug interactions, what do you do with that? And maybe tell us about some of the medications that give you pause.
1: Great question, and I think that's one of the big areas where having a good transplant HIV physician on your team can help you optimize risk going into transplant. So we want to avoid um, pharmaco enhancers, or specifically the CYP3A4 inhibitors and um, those would include protease inhibitors and now our cobicistat-containing regimens. So those are the real ones that we wanna move away from. Fortunately, we now have seven classes of antiretroviral therapy. We have more than 20 FDA-approved drugs to pick from. So typically, we're able to find a regimen that avoids pharmaco-enhancers.
0: And what do you do in terms of the donor? Um, Are are there viral load levels that are important to you? Are there uh, genotypes that are important to you? How do you approach the donor?
1: Great question. We're definitely still learning here. Uh, Part of the HOPE Act actually includes NIH safeguards and research criteria. So anyone who wants to do these transplants right now needs to do them under a research study. And it did include some caveats about what donors. We need to avoid at this stage donors that have any active opportunistic infections. There are no caveats with regard to viral load or CD4 count, but I think that, but the study teams do need to anticipate that this donor will not have a multi-drug resistant virus. In the United States, we do have some people that have antiretroviral resistance right at the get go, just because we have, we're fortunate enough to have wide access to antiretrovirals. But I think we don't see a lot of multi-drug resistance, so it's a matter of using, you know, our best judgment at the time of a donor offer, trying to get as much information as we can about that donor's HIV history, and then making a judicious decision about whether or not there's a a real risk of multi-drug resistant HIV.
0: This is incredibly helpful, and I think that uh, our listeners will uh, listen to this and uh, take this into their own practice, so that if you have a patient that has HIV, of course, transplantation is a very viable option, but then in addition to that, uh, in, in terms of having more access to organs for them, refer them to a center that has the study in place so that they can do it. What are the sites that are doing this now?
1: Honestly, that's a moving target. It seems like a new site comes on board every every day. So I know there's, there's more than 30 different transplant centers across the U.S. that are involved. Many of the same centers that were involved in Peter Stock and Michelle Rowland study. Um, the centers tend to be more concentrated on the East Coast, but we have definitely spread geographically across the country, so there's probably uh, a, a transplant center near near most patients um, that will offer this.
0: Great. Now shifting gears, we are in the midst of a uh, terrible opiate epidemic with uh, people uh, tragically dying much earlier than we would like and you've been able to find a silver lining in that if i if i may use that term Uh, tell us about your study in terms of using organs from people that have died uh, from an opiate overdose
1: yeah that has definitely changed organ donation and transplantation um across the board and and certainly I'm not alone in this um, in this endeavor but I think many of our surgeons uh, recognized early on they were getting a lot more phone calls about young otherwise healthy individuals who had tragically died of an organ over uh, of a opioid overdose Mm -hmm. and because um, hepatitis C is linked to injection drug use. Many of these donors also had hepatitis C themselves, or at least were at increased risk for that. At the same time, in 2015, we now uh, we, we found a very effective and tolerable cure for hepatitis C. So, just the the convergence of those two things—the opioid epidemic and a reliable and safe cure for hepatitis C—made it possible to consider using these organs that otherwise you know, might have been discarded. So that's, um, again, something new happening across the country at many transplant centers.
0: So in the not so distant past, a patient that was hepatitis C negative would not be eligible for a hepatitis C positive organ, but that's changed. And you've been at the forefront of some of the research on that. What are some of the lessons you've learned?
1: Great question. Uh, I think you know it's it's a little bit different than the HOPE Act story because this was never illegal, um, but it certainly was not conventional and certainly wasn't the standard of care. So I think uh, we've we've gone into this carefully, and we still have a lot to learn. There are different approaches at different centers, and there's no one standard way of doing it. But um, you know, I've learned that that people on the on the waiting list, if you sit down, have an honest conversation with them about the unknown risks and the benefits. They're also willing to, um, you know, go go out on a limb and um, take chances in order to get off dialysis, which, you know, being on dialysis itself has a risk of death. So I think transplantation is never a zero risk um, equation. And so, as infectious disease doctors, we just need to weigh the risks of treatable infections against the risk of dying.
0: No, that's great. Now, we could really spend an entire day talking about your research interests and portfolios, and and I'm really gonna focus on the transplant side, but there's a whole other area that uh, Dr. Durand works in that has to do with cancer and HIV, and, uh, and even bone marrow transplant and HIV, and that will hopefully be a discussion for another time. But before we leave, I do wanna ask uh, uh, a question because many of our listeners are women and many of our listeners are uh, men who are interested in seeing women succeed. What have been some of the challenges and opportunities for you as a physician, scientist, woman?
1: Well, thanks for that question. Um, I think I've been very fortunate to train at a time where women were just as likely as men to be in my medical school class, and if anything, I think today there's more women than men coming in. Um, And I've also been fortunate to be in a division and with colleagues who have really supported me and lifted me up, not only as a physician scientist, but, but as a woman. You know, for example, I think we enjoy a supportive uh, environment for, for being a mother and for being committed to family. And so I think that's something that's just been um, the culture here. And for myself personally, I've just, learned, I've just needed to learn how to balance what I want to do in my career with um, taking care of myself, taking care of my family, learning when to say no, which is a skill and a skill that's not always easy. Um, but just understanding um, that, you know, my identity is not just as a physician, faculty member, but it's also as a mom, as a woman, as a human. So,
0: Well, this has been terrific. Thank you very much, Dr. Duran, for joining us. And thank you all for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye.